Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word right there with you in your seat. If you don't have a Bible that you can call your own, just look underneath the seat in front of you. You can grab one of those and use that during the service today. If you've been around for any length of time, you know that we've been studying Mark's Gospel for the past almost two years now, 18 months. Here we are, Mark chapter 14, verse 53, as we are in the final week of Jesus' life. We're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 14, verse 53. Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple. That is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of power. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us now in this time as we turn our attention to your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. We ask, Father, this morning that you would apply these truths to our lives, that you would write your truth on our hearts that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God as it has been decisively revealed in the Word of God. Father, we pray for those who are believers who are present, that they might be encouraged today. And God, we pray for those who have joined us who are not yet Christians. Lord, that today you would be merciful to remove the heart of stone and insert the heart of flesh and cause them to be born again by the Spirit of Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There has never been a greater humiliation of a person than that of Jesus. As a Puritan, John Flavel said, Was not this astonishing self-denial that he, who from eternity had his father's smiles and honors, he that from the creation was adored and worshipped by angels as their God, must now become a footstool for every miscreant to tread on. No one has ever descended so low because no one has ever come from so high. But what exactly is Jesus' humiliation? While his death on the cross was the pinnacle of his humiliation, certainly what we all think of when we think of the humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Mark's gospel has been helping us to see that there are many other humiliations that he experienced before he was ever hung naked on a cross, cursed by God, on display before the entire world to see. As Basil of Caesarea said, from his birth to the end of his life, he experienced all the humiliations that befall mankind. One such humiliation was his trial. What should have been a public vindication of Jesus' innocence became a travesty of justice as the sins of the whole world were symbolized by those 
involved in his arrest and persecution. As we turn our attention to Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65 today, four points will frame our study this morning. Their slander, his silence, his declaration, their decision. Notice first, their slander. Look again in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore a false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. The next several hours must have seemed like a whirlwind to Jesus. After Jesus' violent nighttime arrest in the garden, Mark tells us that he is taken before the Jewish leadership an opportunity that they have been seeking since early in Jesus' ministry. And now here in the middle of the night, only a few hours after celebrating the Passover feast, they finally have Jesus. While all the rest of Jerusalem and its Passover pilgrims are at home asleep, Jesus stands trial for his life alone. Betrayed by Judas, about to be denied by Peter, Abandoned by all of his closest followers. As his Jewish captors condemn him for blasphemy before sending him to the Roman governor, Pilate. Now it isn't the intent of my sermon to reconcile all of the alleged contradictions surrounding the final hours of Jesus' life. But I do think it is helpful for us to identify what appears to be so problematic to so many people. Who actually have real questions about the final hours of Jesus' life as he steps up to his death, because the gospel accounts around Jesus' trials are really hard to harmonize at points. If you just read through the gospels, you'll see that John, in contrast to the synoptics, tells us that Jesus is taken immediately to Annas before his arrest in John chapter 18, verse 13. But Matthew, like Mark today, seems to reference that there are two trials, one in the middle of the night, the one that we're reading about, and one early the next morning. Luke doesn't mention Annas or anything about the middle of the night. He just mentions the one at daybreak. So what are we to do when we read all of these gospel accounts, all focused on Jesus' life, all telling us about the most important man who ever lived, all telling us about the most significant events that ever took place, and they all seem to offer different accounts of what happened in the final hours of his life. When we take them together and we read very closely, we see that they're not contradictions at all, especially when we consider that each evangelist had a purpose in the way that he recounted the details of the final hours of Jesus' life, something that we can all easily understand simply by the way that we ourselves tell stories. When you tell a story, you have an intent. There are details that you include and details that you leave out, not because that they didn't happen, but because they are not necessary for your telling of the story. Any good storyteller in the room knows that details will kill a good story. Mark, Luke, Matthew, John were each trying to tell a very clear story so that you might respond to who Jesus Christ is. Mark doesn't tell us about the moment with Annas. Mark doesn't even identify that the current high priest is Caiaphas because it does not help him answer any of the questions that he has been trying to answer for us throughout our entire time in Mark's gospel. Who is Jesus? What does Jesus expect of those who follow him? Why did Jesus have to die? These details don't answer those questions so that they, they are irrelevant details for Mark. So he merely tells us, verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest even though a close reading of all of the Gospels reveals that there are three phases in the proceedings. Before Annas, described by John. Before Caiaphas and at least some of the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. And at daybreak, with a final review of the testimony. As we read, we receive the impression from Mark that Jesus was involved in an actual trial. Even though many people have said that this could not have been a trial as Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin because other Jewish texts tell us that that was prohibited by the procedures described in Mark's gospel. 
Just a few examples for you. The trial was held at night and in the home of the high priest rather than the official court of the Sanhedrin. The trial was held on the Passover and trials were forbidden on the Sabbath day and feast days. The testimony of the witnesses do not seem to agree at all in Mark's gospel, even though the law clearly demanded scrupulous agreement among witnesses. The sentence of death immediately followed the proceeding, though later law demanded that there needed to be a period that intervened between the accusations and the sentence. Jesus is condemned for blasphemy, although blasphemy is completely around pronouncing the divine name. So what are we to make of all of these things? As far as we know, there was a very different atmosphere that prevailed prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Later legislation that gives us all of these rules that try to contradict what we have in the Gospels is based on Pharisaic tradition, but at this time the Sadducees dominated the Sanhedrin. And at the end of the day, if we're just reading Mark as the narrative that it is, this is probably the case of frantic people responding to desperate times. The longer that they wait in their proceedings, the more likely it is that Jesus' followers are going to catch wind of what they're doing and rise up to deliver him from them. So they act quickly, and that's exactly what they do in Mark's gospel. So verse 55, they call witnesses as they seek testimony against Jesus. They make charges. They interrogate Jesus. They convict him of blasphemy. They condemn him to death. I have not settled any debate for anyone. In fact, I've barely begun to scratch the surface of some of the questions that perhaps some of you may have here today. So I would like to commend a book for you outside of the Gospel of Mark. It's called The Final Days of Jesus, if you're still confused about the details surrounding Jesus' life. In fact, it's a book that you could read this Lenten season. Perhaps you don't even know what that is. Right now, we're in the season leading up to Easter, preparing for Resurrection Sunday on April 4th. Those are the weeks leading up to when we celebrate as a church the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could get that book and read through it as it goes through the final days of Jesus. In fact, if you want to prepare for that specifically, you could get that book and begin reading it on Palm Sunday. That's the Sunday before Easter Sunday. And just read the section corresponding to each day of the week leading up to Easter Sunday. And if you don't want to read that book, I have one book with me today, Can We Trust the Gospels? The only commitment is you have to promise to read it by Easter Sunday. If you'll read it by Easter Sunday, I'll be standing in the courtyard after the service, and I would love to give you a copy of that book because the reality is that these questions are the types of questions that so many people ask and say, that's why the gospel is not true. Jesus didn't die on the cross in the place of sinners. We can't trust the Bible. It's not reliable. It's not accurate. It tells us conflicting statements. And I'm here to tell you, from the Bible and with the help of these books, that they are wrong. That these things did happen. That Jesus was tried falsely and accused wrongly. Friends, his is the most important life that was and is and will ever be lived. And understanding the significance of his life in relation to your life is of eternal consequence. I wonder, and just ask you, do you have opinions about Jesus? without ever having learned much about Jesus or studied his life very closely. It is not uncommon for me to meet somebody who asserts much about the life of Jesus Christ, when in reality, they know very little about the life of Jesus Christ, and they've never spent time reading the Bible. Their eternal destiny hangs in the balance about somebody that they've never considered more than a few moments because of a few things that they've heard from people that they don't really like after all. I'm here to tell you that if you turn your attention to the Bible, that you will see not only consistency, but clarity about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and the significance of his life for your life. If you have any questions about who Jesus is, we would love to speak with you. Pastor Josh would love to speak with you. Pastor Terry here on the front row would love to speak with you. I'd love to speak with you and connect you to somebody who would open the Bible with you and tell you about the most important life that you could ever consider. As you try to answer the question, who is Jesus? And if you don't have a Bible like we said at the very beginning, take one of those home with you. That's our gift as a church to you. We don't just leave them there so that they would look good in the chairs underneath the seat. We want them to be used by you. You can have that Bible, one that you can read and study on your own. 
Mark tells us that Jesus is now face to face with his most hostile adversaries in his gospel. As verse 53, all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes come together. Groups of people who normally hated each other. Groups of people who can never work together have now conspired together because they have a common enemy, Jesus Christ. And together they, verse 55, the whole council, that is the entire Sanhedrin, a group of 70 religious leaders, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But this hearing in search of a charge appears to be in a bit of a panic in Mark's gospel as they seek in vain witnesses to testify against Jesus. Look at verse 56. For many bore false witness against him. Now what I want you to do, if you're a person who likes to underline in your Bible, just look at the end of verse 55 and you'll see that they found no testimony. Now I want you to underline a phrase that's similar to that every time I read it. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying... We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Mark tells us, verse 55, the verdict, death, was decided, even though verses 56 through 59, the charge was not. But the real irony in Mark's gospel is that they couldn't get two false witnesses to agree about false charges so that they could falsely accuse Jesus. No matter how hard they tried, they bungled the entire proceedings as the best liars money could buy couldn't agree to indict Jesus. So you can almost imagine their anxiety. As the night wears on, since Jewish law is very clear that at least two and better three witnesses had to agree before imposing a death penalty, the death penalty that they all wanted. Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Numbers 35, verse 30. No person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. They all knew the law. And they're frantically pursuing an accusation. So that they can charge Jesus. But the only thing that they misunderstood was something Jesus said a few years ago in verse 58. I will destroy this temple, his body, and in three days I will build another by his resurrection. By the time we get to the end of verse 59, the only thing that is clear is the absolute innocence of Jesus in Mark's gospel. As Mark draws our attention three times to the complete Lack of evidence. An absolute inconsistency of the false leaders here as these false witnesses wrongly accuse him. And they show themselves willing to break God's word and their own rules to have him crucified. They are intent on killing an innocent man. Their slander, notice second, his silence. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. In contrast to these false witnesses, Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin as Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, the faithful and true witness, and remarkably, unbelievably, he doesn't even think to answer their lies. When false charges are brought against him, he said nothing. Symbolically emphasizing that no genuine charge had been brought against him. That there was no substantiated argument to answer. That he did not need to respond to anything that they had said. That he need not justify himself before anyone. None of which made it possible for the hearing to reach its desired end. You can imagine how frustrated they would have been. Just like some of you get frustrated when you're in an argument and the person that you're arguing with doesn't respond at all and they stand there and look at you in absolute silence. And you think, do you care? Are you listening? Did you hear what they said? 
That is exactly what the religious leaders are doing in this moment. So the frustrated high priest, verse 60, challenges his silence. Have you no answer to make? No doubt. Jesus, who's very aware of what he's doing and where he's going, is remembering and reminding those members of the court who perhaps had some spiritual sensitivity of Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. In chapter 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And one begins to wonder, did some of them, did any of them, hear what Jesus was saying by his silence? I am the one that you are looking for. I am the Messiah. I am the suffering servant Isaiah prophesied of. I am the Savior who came to save my people from their sins. I am the first and I am the last. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the one who if anyone comes to me, they will never be thirsty again. They will never be hungry again. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the resurrection and the life because I am the Christ, the Son of God. Friends, what now seems so obvious to us as we read Mark's gospel is obscured by sin. Sin that had hardened hearts. Because that is exactly what sin does. It hardens our hearts. And it deadens our sensitivity to divine revelation. As it leads us down paths that we would never go in our right minds. Brothers and sisters, sin numbs you to the truth. And it is sin. Jealousy. Pride. Hatred. Envy. That prevented this high priest from seeing the Son of God right in front of his face. And it is sin that will prevent you from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ who is the image of God. Sin hardens you. It numbs you. It blinds you. Not merely to its consequences, but also to its presence in your life. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount... Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck that is out, out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, friends, if we can see sin in someone else's life, then we never have to deal with sin in our own life. Which is why we are all so quick to point to sin in someone else's life. I'm not as bad as him. Look what he's doing. I didn't say what she said. Look what she said. I'm not doing what they're doing. I've never done what they have done. Because as long as we can point to an enemy outside of us, we never have to look at the enemy inside of us. Are you scrutinizing someone else? Husbands, are you scrutinizing your wife? Wife, are you scrutinizing your husband? Parents, are you unnecessarily scrutinizing your children? Children, are you unnecessarily scrutinizing your siblings or classmates? Are you looking for a problem outside of yourself so that you do not have to look at the problem within yourself? And the really tragic thing, as we do it in so many subtle ways. Well, if only they were here to hear the sermon today. I just want to hold you accountable. I'm just a straight shooter, and I call a spade a spade and tell it like it is. All the while deceiving ourselves that what we're doing is speaking truth. But what is scarier than even that is that we're not just blind to it. We don't even want to see it. So when someone actually does tell us the truth, we justify ourselves. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. Someone speaks the truth to you and you say, whoa, 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 whoa. 
You need to take the speck out of your eye. And then when we glimpse it finally in our own lives, we downplay its significance because we're too proud to see it. Friends, I'm here to tell you what maybe no one has ever told you. That your sin will send you to hell. Your sin will send you to hell. Your sin has separated you from God. Your sin is not to be minimized or marginalized or downplayed or compared with anybody else because we all view ourselves on a ladder. At the top of the ladder is Jesus, and then there are all these other people that we think are more godly than us. Billy Graham, John Piper, pick your favorite most holy person. We see ourselves modestly somewhere in the middle, but there are people still lower than us, and I'm here to tell everybody in the room today, we are all at the bottom of the ladder. No one's in the middle. We are all at the bottom comparing ourselves to other people wrongly. We downplay our sin and marginalize it to our error. It will send us to hell. It is dragging us away from God. It blinds our eyes. It it makes us deaf. It hardens our heart and numbs us to the truth, which is why we find ourselves in patterns of sin, promising ourselves, I will never do that again. I will never say that again. I will never go there again. Only hardened to do it again. Friends, your sins will send you to hell. They've separated you from Christ. They have estranged you from God. And because of them, the wrath of God is coming. And apart from Jesus Christ, it is coming on you. We're just like the Jewish leaders. They were so proud. Racially, nationally, religiously, morally. They were proud of their nation's long history and heritage, of their special relationship with God. They were a privileged people. They were proud of their own leadership role in that nation. And above all, they were proud of their authority. That is the contest in Mark's gospel. They have a contest with Jesus that is essentially all about authority. It's a struggle of authority. Who is going to be in charge at the end of all of this? Because they were proud and they were envious. They were envious and they challenged his authority while at the same time possessing authority that he himself possessed that they manifestly lacked. They felt threatened by Jesus because he undermined their prestige. And the hold that they had over other people. And their own self-confidence and their own self-respect. And the reality is, is that not much has changed in 2,000 years. We're just like the religious leaders. We resent Jesus' intrusion into our lives. His demand of our worship. His expectation of our obedience. His application of authority to our lives. Why can't Jesus just mind his own business and leave me alone? To which Jesus is faithful in Mark's gospel to tell us. I will never leave you alone. But because of sin, we perceive him as a threat. And just like the religious leaders, we're determined to get rid of his influence in our lives. Because it upsets us. Friends, it is only when we have eyes to see by the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we will see that the high priest's challenge of Jesus' silence is because he's afraid. He is terrified that this one who is silent, actually has authority. That he is who he says that he is. What do you say about what they say about you? To which Jesus offers no response because it's not the right question. And only then will we begin to observe that the same high priest questioning Jesus is also the one who has been commissioned by God to kill the Lamb of Atonement that year. And that high priest is the one who's about to put to death the final lamb of atonement for the sins of the world. Jesus opened not his mouth until Jesus was ready to choose the grounds on which he would be tried in order to make the point about his own identity. Their slander, his silence, notice third, his declaration. Look in verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? The son of the blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming 
with the clouds of heaven. His refusal to speak ushers us to the proceedings of this climactic moment when the high priest stands to Jesus and says, don't you have an answer to make? And when Jesus remains silent, he presses on and he continues, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus' response is immediate and it is an unqualified affirmative. I am. If there was ever any doubt in Mark's gospel about what Jesus believes about himself is found right here in this verse. And it erases all doubt in that moment. Jesus finally speaks. He finally confirms what we know to be true as this high priest questions him. As Mark links the end of his gospel with the beginning of his gospel. If you have your Bible, flip to the very first page of Mark's gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. And as you're turning there, many of you will remember the verse that we have been referencing our entire study of Mark's gospel. There, Mark tells us what as readers we have known throughout the entire gospel, but what these people have not heard Jesus say until now. And here's what Mark says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And now here the high priest asked Jesus to confirm his identity on these exact terms. And he says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now I've taught you all to be careful Bible readers and you've heard me say that many times. And so undoubtedly some of you are going to say, well, Pastor, it doesn't say Son of God, it says Son of the Blessed. To which I will say you are exactly right. But Blessed is actually the Jewish way to avoid saying the divine name of God. And in a context where blasphemy is the charge, and that's what's at stake, because a formal de definition of blasphemy would require somebody to misuse God's names, it is what we call a circumlocution. They're not saying the divine name. They're saying blessed. You see that same type of thing in the book of Romans. God, the blessed one, the eternal one, or Ephesians. Blessed be the God, highlighting who he is. Jesus knows exactly what they're asking him. And they know exactly what Jesus has said, which is why they respond the way that they do. Because Jesus has now revealed his identity that he has kept secret throughout the entirety of his public ministry in Mark's gospel. Yes, he is the Messiah, although he's not the kind the Jews expected. But he goes further in verse 62 as he begins to combine several Old Testament figures to express his identity. He stood before them as the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, 7. The Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And the Son of God, Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus said in verse 62, I am, and you will see, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In his vision, Daniel saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached this ancient of days as he's led into his presence. One who is given authority and glory and power over all peoples and all nations and all languages throughout all time and all space for all eternity. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It is a dominion that will never end. It is a rulership that is sovereign over all things. His kingdom will not be destroyed. It cannot be thwarted. Jesus, whom the Sanhedrin proposed to judge, was in this moment claiming to be the king that would actually judge them. And you will see. His words are a dramatic declaration of a coming victory as he announces what he has come to do. No examination of Jesus' claim needs to be made in this moment. They are very clear what Jesus has done. They know exactly what he has said about himself. How could this man who's been deserted by everybody that professed to follow him and care for him possibly be the glorious Messiah that we have all longed for? The idea is preposterous to them. Their slander, his silence, his declaration, notice fourth, their decision. Look at verse 63. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him. And to cover his face. And to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. It's no longer a trial in Mark's gospel. It's an absolute riot. 
What happens next is an expression of undiluted hatred by the religious leaders. He tears his garment as a sign of contempt as he expresses a judicial act. He knows that Jesus has blasphemed. The question begins to be asked, what, Jesus, what is it about what Jesus has said that leads to the accusation of blasphemy? People say all kinds of things. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the Son of God. He's supposedly setting himself in opposition to the temple. He finally uses the divine name with the ego and me statement that says, I am. But what seems to be most clear is that Jesus claims to sit at God's right hand. And the one sitting at God's right hand is God. Of these, Jesus is very clear. He's putting himself in a special relationship with God, and they are absolutely enraged about it. And the high priest tore his garments. What further witnesses do we need? And then they mock him. And they physically abuse him. And they spit on him. And their actions jolt us right back into the present moment. The sinless son of God is on a false trial before false witnesses among people who have falsely accused him. And is being mistreated and shamed and maimed by those who are committed to killing him. Among people who have no concern for justice. Only in maintaining positions of power. Friends, their eyes are blind to what they're doing. If you were aware of the sin in your life, you wouldn't sin. And if you ever thought rightly about the consequences of your sin... You wouldn't sin. These high priests did not think that they were sinning against God. They are completely blind. The Son of God is right before them. The Sanhedrin demonstrated a cynical, politically savvy, self-serving disposition. They compromised their moral integrity to preserve their positions of power. And that's what we all hate, isn't it? When someone leverages their own power to preserve their own power so that they can have the perks of their own leadership. We all have seen it. Leadership gone awry is an ugly thing. It is used to oppress. It is used to hurt. It is used to obscure justice. That's not just true in the 21st century. The world of the Bible tells us that that has always been taking place. People have always sought to use their positions of power to hold other people down, and to tell them false things. And we see that that happened no less than the Son of God himself. Brothers and sisters, just as we think of leadership as a complete aside, one of the things that your pastors at this church have asked you to do is to hold us accountable to the truth of God so that we would never obscure the truth from you. If we are unfaithful, fire us or remove us. What we need to pray for is that we would be faithful leaders because surely nobody at the court that evening began their high priestly ministry and their service to the temple thinking, I will be the one who obscures justice. I will be the one who oppresses people with truth turned slightly. I will be the one who takes advantage of my own position. And I can assure you that no leader serving here at this church would ever think that right now either. So it is your job to make sure that we are faithful from what we preach and how we live. And please know that it is our job to also make sure that you are faithful to what you have confessed to be true and what you have signed to believe in relation to this church, which is exactly why we practice church discipline as a local church. Your life is our business. Brothers and sisters, our life is also your business. That's a strong reminder of what we all know. That we are not our knowledge. These people had incredible knowledge. Better knowledge of the Bible than any of us. They knew Greek. They knew Hebrew. They knew Aramaic. They knew doctrinal facts. They had memorized it all. They had seen it taking place in their own lives. They knew truth and they knew nothing. Notice how Mark emphasizes the corporate responsibility of the religious leaders. As they, verse 64, all 
condemn him as deserving death. As once more, verse 65 fulfills the prediction of Jesus himself. Jesus said, this is what would happen in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, verse 31. In chapter 10, verse 34. We're going to Jerusalem, and then this is going to happen. And the irony among it all is that when they cover his eyes and say, prophesy. Jesus has just prophesied in their midst who he is. But no one is listening. Are you listening? Why did he do it? Flip back just a few pages in your Bible to chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is serving us here. In the garden, he resolved to go to the cross. And in this trial, there's an explosion of scripture references as Jesus identifies himself as the Christ. In service for his people. He is beaten. He is mocked. He is falsely accused. He is slandered. He is misrepresented. He is falsely tried and falsely judged. For you. Jesus Christ was serving you. Believer in this room. May this stir our hearts and make them strangely warm. As we are reminded of the sufferings of the Savior. Yes, think of the cross. But also think of everything that leads up to the cross. Throughout the entirety of this night. Jesus experiences a terror. As everybody leaves him. As everyone mocks him. As everyone slanders him. And he did it for you. Because he loved you. For God so loved the world, Jesus so loved his chosen people that he endured it all for you so that you might know the grace and the mercy and the favor and the shining face of the glory of God in Christ so that you might have peace and forgiveness of sins, so that you who are alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds might be now reconciled in his body of death by what he has done for us on the cross and be made holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. He did it for you. What a glorious truth for all of us today. Jesus served you. He loved you. He died for you. And when you think, my life is of no consequence. It is insignificant. No one cares. Woe is me. Look to the Gospels and be reminded of what your life mattered to the Son of God. He loves you. You are valuable to Him. Here, me say on behalf of Him, Jesus Christ died for you. He loves you. He has forgiven you. An unbeliever heart in heart today. You will never be saved. Apart from the mercy of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are here to tell you that there is no other way. We have told you what is the terrible news. Your sin has wrecked and devastated your life. And there is no hope and only wrath apart from Jesus. But in Christ. There is the forgiveness of sins. If you would just repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, it's a simple message. In fact, it's so simple, it's completely offensive. Anybody who's intelligent says, that's so simple, how could it be? And that is the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be really smart or good looking, rich or educated. You don't have to be white. You don't have to be from the United States of America. You can be from anywhere and be of no consequence to everybody all around the world. And here is the beauty of the gospel. If you would confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You might be estranged from everybody on planet earth, but you will be, be known to God. Friends, come to him. We plead with you. It is the reason that we are here on Sunday mornings to remind ourselves of the beauty of this gospel and to call you to everlasting life in Christ. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Do not wait another moment. Do not leave here today without finding somebody and saying, what must I do to be saved? Do not let your pride keep you from coming to him. It is possibly true that some among us who have identified with Jesus don't really know him. Do not let your pride 
of what others might think keep you from coming to Christ? I can tell you what everybody would think if you come to Christ today. Praise God that he saves sinners. That's what everybody would think. You have nothing to lose and only to gain. Come to Christ. We would love to talk to you. There's never been a greater humiliation of a person than of Jesus. So we must ask, is there a humiliation that is too great for us to bear? There is no conceivable situation for sinners in which we can compare our humiliation to that of Jesus and his life and death. Friends, there is a straight line from the cradle to the grave. Jesus never wavered. There is a straight line from his birth to his death. Jesus never faltered. There is a straight line from the moment that he entered this world to the moment that he exited this world and breathed his last. He came for one purpose. He was born to die so that we might have everlasting life. He was humiliated so that you might not be shamed. And though it goes against everything our Western society would teach us, our glorious Christians is identification with Jesus in his humiliation. So what are some applications for us today? First, just look at the final verse of our passage and look at the way that they respond in the presence of the Son of God and realize what religious people might become when they turn away from Jesus. Beasts of passion controlled. Brothers and sisters, when we obscure the truth, we are enraged to act just like this. Second, lies and false reports are among Satan's choicest weapons. Lies and false reports are among Satan's choicest weapons. Misinformation to confuse the church. Misinformation about what other people have said so that you might think something about them. Misinformation so that we might be estranged from one another and slander one another and accuse one another and think less of one another and think that each other is something that we're not. Friends, that's not just true in the first century, that's true now. Lies and misrepresentation of the truth are among Satan's choicest weapons. He is seeking to destroy the church by lies. Because if he can isolate you from the other people in this church, then you are vulnerable. If you ever wonder why relationships in this church are hard to preserve, it is because spiritual warfare is real. The enemy wants to destroy all meaningful relationships that you have in the church. He does not want you close to other people because he does not want you battling sin. He does not want you in relationship with other people because he wants you isolated, which is why we plead, join the church, be a member of the church, be held accountable by the church. Do not go through this life alone. You were never meant to do it alone. Jesus has not saved you unto yourself. He has saved you and he has placed you among his people and his mercy to you this morning is that he's placed you here in this church to hear the gospel. Friends, come. We would love to talk with you about what it means to have fellowship with others in the church. Third, silence in the face of accusation is often the course that we are to take as Christians. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When we think of Jesus' life, it is for us and for our salvation, but it was also as an example for us. You see, we wrongly read the Old Testament. We go back there and we look at the lives of Old Testament people and think they're examples for us of how we're to live. They are examples for you of how not to live. Jesus is the example of how to live. And notice what Peter tells us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Now imagine this. Peter, years later, reflecting back on these moments after having denied Jesus. Maybe not present in person, he's certainly in the courtyard at this moment, but reflecting upon the significance of them, says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself 
to him who judges justly. Friends, silence in the face of false accusation is often the best course. We live in a world that tells you that you need to justify yourself. You need to justify yourself before God and before other people. You need to set things right. You need to make sure people know what are the facts and what are the truth. But Jesus models for us something very different. He did not care what people thought when they thought wrongly. He only cared to tell them the truth. Not to justify himself, but so that they might know the one true and living God. Friends, think of our relationships and how silence, the endurance of our Lord, is so difficult. When you've been in an argument with somebody that you love and care about, you all know exactly what I'm talking about. As they're speaking to you, you're not even listening. You're immediately responding in your mind of what you're going to say. Jesus knew it was all a lie, and he said nothing. Friends, that is often the best course of action, to say nothing. We need not justify ourselves if we have been justified by God. We don't need to do it in person. We don't need to do it online. We don't need to do it with a blog. We don't need to do it by sending someone an article or a video or reminding them of something. We don't need to justify ourselves before other people. If we have been justified by God, friends, if you have trusted Christ, who cares? Who cares? Church, members of this church, if we've been justified, let not the enemy use this desire to be seen as right. Often we don't even want to be right. We just want to be seen as right. Who cares? Preserve unity. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We've been justified by faith in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these truths. We pray that you would write them on our hearts. We thank you for the endurance of the Son of God, his compassion, his sufferings, the entirety of his humiliation for us and for our salvation. God, we ask that as we consider the Christ today afresh, that we would think much of what Jesus has done for us. Father, we thank you that our presence here today is a reminder that we are not alone. We have been bought with a price and we have been set among your people. We are so thankful for that. Father, we pray for those who have joined with us who are not yet Christians. We pray that today they would hear the voice of the Son of God that they would look to his cross, and that they would live. And Father, we pray for those who are tired and weary and worn, that they would be encouraged by the endurance of the Son of God, and that today they would catch a fresh wind as they turn their attention to your word and as your spirit gives them grace. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.